So according to Allison, we're at down, up, down, and space in between. Up, down, and the space in between. We know instinctively that for many plants, the winter cold, bareness, and withdrawal are absolutely essential to their later blossoming and growth. Most of us know this, but when it comes to our own lives, we don't always see it. We don't see the periods of confusion, misery, or mild depression as fruitful. We don't see that they're necessary for growth. We're much more likely to think that there's something wrong with us and that we need to do something or take something to counter this down period. The minute something's wrong, we run to the doctor and see if we can't get a quick fix. This is one of the reasons antibiotics are so overused that they're losing their effectiveness. Western culture tells us that if something does not please us, that if it feels disturbing or wrong to us, it should have an immediate antidote. I had a student from Nebraska tell me that she didn't know what was wrong with her meditation practice, but for the last two weeks, she felt sort of down. She really didn't feel bubbly like she liked to feel. So what's wrong with the practice? Nothing, absolutely nothing. What's wrong with feeling down for a few weeks? I'm not talking about major depression here. As human beings, our emotions are constantly shifting, sometimes within a week, a day, an hour, or a moment. And we may be going along fine. And then suddenly there's a dip. Our spirits rise and fall. We may know intellectually that we can't have the light without the darkness and we can't have up without down. But when it comes to our own thoughts and emotions, we want to live full time in the light. We think there's something wrong with us or our meditation practice if we can't make everything feel just fine. So where did this come? Oops. Where did this come from? This idea that about that we we should we deserve the light and that's the way things should be. I think we confuse the path with the result. I think people hear so much about the benefits of stillness and meditation and its results and don't understand that the path, the journey to get us to that point entails a lot of these other things. And even when we're there, things will constantly come up because life changes. Yeah, I'm wondering if there is a point. I mean, if there is a, you know, place. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> For me, there isn't. But this uh, must no, Go on. Go no, ahead. go ahead, Kim. No, I was just going to start reading, but you wanted to talk, so that's good. No, I, I, I think I was, I think I'm next, right? Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but this misconstrues the purpose of practice. Practice isn't about making things fine. It's about seeing that life is an alternation all the time. Life and death, winter and summer, confusion and clarity. No matter who we are and what we do, we will experience these fluctuations, these highs and lows. There's nothing wrong with us. We don't practice meditation to make things all better. The purpose is not to is the purpose is not to get the up up. We think if we do it right, we can go to a happy, positive place and stay there. Would that be a great place to be? Not necessarily. We practice so we can be at peace at any point, no matter where we are <coughs> in the up and down curve of our lives. So, so then you're going to be exactly where you are, right? Mm -hmm. With this doesn't sound very promising. <laughs> with practice, we can see with more clarity and be present with what, with what is, whatever it is, right at this second. This all sounds great in theory, but when the down dip happens to us, we don't like it. That's fine. We don't have to like it. Bless joy. 
what does it mean to practice in such a way that we become attuned to the up and down reality of life? Sometimes the doubts are more frequent and deeper. We get layer. We suddenly feel physically terrible and don't want what's wrong and don't know what's wrong. Our partner leaves us or we leave them. Our children leave us or they return home. With age and illness, sometimes the dips come more often, but our learning accessories because we begin to understand that life is swinging up and down on the time. It won't just stay still. It won't just stay still so we can feel good. It's that foolishness of wanting things to always stay the same, to stay good. That keeps our lives from being joyful. To be joyful is to be at whatever point on that up and down swing that we are. We're always going to be somewhere. That doesn't mean we don't take care of things like losing a job or being ill. We take care of what needs to be taken care of, but without the demand that it be taken care of right now, immediately and forever. The thought that I should be joyful at the bottom of the trough is a thought, it's a concept. The reality is that when we experience the moment fully for what it is, joy is revealed. But we don't have to do anything for that reason. Joy just is. That joy is available at any point. Nancy Lynch, did you get a chance to read? Did I? Okay. My audio acceptable. Yeah, it's fine. Then I'll go. When we can be absolutely just where we are, there is a surprising and easy joy. This is a very basic thing for all of us. When we understand practice as being okay with what is, that leads to joy. Joy doesn't mean the same thing as happiness. In the United States, we have so much wealth and so many material advantages that we tend to think happiness is our right, and we like our gadgets. We think we can gadget our way to happiness. For the first time in my life, I have a dishwasher. I always thought that cooking for one person, I didn't need a dishwasher. There were just a few dishes, but I love that dishwasher. It's just wonderful, and I see that if I didn't have a dishwasher, I'd be all right. I'll adjust to that in a day or so. Happiness is the up, up, up. Joy is the peace in what is. It shouldn't be any other way than that. Well, I really resent this paragraph being assigned to me because I don't have a dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> I have one. In January, I, I moved into a place that had one for the first time in seven years. and. It didn't magically make my kitchen cleaner without me putting an effort, as it turns out. <laughs> Joy is what's going on minus our opinion about it. It means that life and me, we're just the same thing. It's just, that's what's going on. That's joyous. You might already know this, but when you really know it in your body, you feel it. You know, I, you know joy in what is. You don't get thrown so much by every little quirk in the way your life goes. This actually, I'm posting a link to an Ellen Bass poem in the chat that really just makes me think about this whole chapter. Well, I, let's let, let's read that. I think I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love I love Ellen Bass. I love her poetry. Do you want me to? Do you want me to? Re I actually had for at my for a long time. I had this printed and framed over my workspace. Would you like me to read it out loud? Yeah. Relax. Bad things are going to happen. Your tomatoes will grow a fungus and your cat will get run over. Someone will leave the bag with the ice cream melting in the car and throw your blue cashmere sweater in the dryer. Your husband will sleep with a girl your daughter's age, her breasts spilling out of her blouse. Or your wife will remember she's a lesbian and leave you for the woman next door. The other cat, the one you never really liked will contract a disease that requires you to pry open its feverish mouth every four hours. Your parents will die. No matter how many vitamins you take, how much Pilates, you'll lose your keys, your hair, and your memory. If your daughter doesn't plug her heart into every live socket she passes, you'll come home to find your son has emptied the refrigerator, dragged it to the curb, and called the used appliance store for a pickup. Drug money. 
There's a Buddhist story of a woman chased by a tiger. When she comes to a cliff, she sees a sturdy vine and climbs halfway down. But there's also a tiger below and two mice, one white, one black, scurry out and begin to gnaw at the vine. At this point, she notices a wild strawberry growing from a crevice. She looks up, down, at the mice. Then she eats the strawberry. So here's the view, the breeze, the pulse in your throat. Your wallet will be stolen. You'll get fat, slip on the bathroom tiles of a foreign hotel and crack your hip. You'll be lonely. Oh, taste how sweet and tart the red juice is. How the tiny seeds crunch between your teeth. Thank you, Allison. I got to see her read that out loud a few a few years ago, and it was just lovely. Oh, where was that? At a poetry at Roundtop, uh, which is a small festival that happens in Roundtop, Texas, in April. It's like just the sweetest little. I mean, it's like it, it, it's not that tiny. There's about usually about a hundred people, um, but it is just that, is, is that the one that Robin goes to? Yeah, yeah, and it's just it's my favorite. And we have not. I've been able to have it now for two years, and uh, it's like my favorite thing, my favorite poetry thing in the world and I miss it terribly. So do you, is uh, Joko Beck, um, is there any strawberry there? <laughs> and what she's talking about, or is the strawberry just realizing that it's not all going to be joy? Well, for me, the strawberry has been when I, have allowed myself to feel everything or whatever I'm feeling. Um, my practice has begun to show me over the years that there's something, I guess you could call it underneath it, which is actually quite peaceful. And um, that seems like it was there prior to whatever thing I'm going through mentally when I meditate. It's always been there. And I think that's kind of, it feels, it feels quiet, it feels timeless, it feels eternal. And I think that's where the joy um, comes from. And so how, about it, how about in the poem? Oh, what do you mean in the poem? In the poem, what? Is, is the strawberry that same realization? That I think so. I think I think it's just that this me. is life. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's and also um, it, it's everything. I mean, life is the you know the kid who you know takes your refrigerator out to the curb and and sells it for drug money, and it's also the sweetness of the strawberry, and it's when you focus on the drug money, you know, it's <laughs> something, you know, that you really don't want and is, should never be there or whatever, then you lose sight of the strawberry to me, you know. That's why I love that poem too, Allison. I uh, heard it at an Ajashanti retreat about uh, eight years ago. Um, it was performed by this performance artist. And when she got to the part about the strawberry, I just, I just teared up. It was just so beautiful, you know, so. But for me, you know, I don't know, I, I, th that concept of peace or joy is something intrinsic to our uh, natural state. Um, I, I've touched on that. You know, I don't always feel it, but having, if you ever glimpse it, you know, you realize that it's always has a sense of having been there, you know. Say the last, <laughs> the last sentence again that you said. It always. It, it, it has a flavor when you touch upon it of having always been there. You know what I mean? It, it, it's not like something that just came, you know, it's, it's, it feels like it's, it's been holding everything, I guess. I, and, and what is it? It's a sense of um, quiet and peace and sort of this timelessness. I, I you know, and um you know, that's, that's what, when, uh, you know, all these years of meditating, and I think most of us who've meditated for a long time, you touch on that, 
I mean, other stuff bubbles, the, the thoughts, you know, all the ups and downs, the emotions, but every once in a while, you notice this quiet, this stillness. And, um, you know, at least, you know, that's, that's been my experience. I don't get it all the time, but having experienced it, I, I, I have confidence that it's, that it is there. Allison? Yes. What were her emotions like when she was reading it? You know, she's not like, she's a very understated poet. So she's not like, a, she's not a performance artist. She's, her, the way she reads is, is really subtle and, and in a way, you know, very conversational. Um, and I, I actually would love to sort of see this interpreted by a more performance oriented poet. But yeah, she's just, she is, she's just, she's tranquil. She's, she's very like, she's just a really, like her whole exterior is just one that's like, oh, it's like tranquility embodied. Okay, because to me it's like she could be making a joke of it and not taking it seriously. But from what you're saying, it was pretty straightforward. Oh yeah, she's very straightforward. She's not a, uh, she's not a humorist. Not that like she, not that her poems don't have moments of humor, but that's not really her aim. Okay, good. Thank you. Cody, or I think you're next. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm noticing and being. <laughs> Everybody is struggling with something: their work, their marriage, their kids, the world around them. Even if they look outwardly successful there is a constant flow from one crisis to another. Even those who are not struggling often feel a sense of longing or a sense of conflicts that are bubbling just below the surface. We may not have what we call outwardly, outwardly big problems, but there's always something. If you learn, if you leave a human being alone for a little while, struggles, struggles come up. What causes our struggling? If we come to a sitting meditation practice, thinking that if we wear a certain thing or sit in a particular way and believe we'll find an answer to this question, we'll be disappointed. It's easy to get caught up in the trappings of practice. There are a lot of things about practice that can be very nice, but they're not crucial. It's fine to wear robes, but it's not crucial. It's fine to chant, but it's not crucial. It's nice to have a very simple, beautiful space to practice in, but it's not crucial. We come to a sitting practice not to get answers, but to become more aware. Sitting is simply to maintain awareness. It's not something fancy. To maintain awareness is to be alive as a human being. There isn't something special called Zen practice. We just try to maintain awareness as much as we can. By awareness, I mean awareness of our mental activities, awareness of anything in our own body that we can notice, and awareness of the environment in terms of the air temperature, cars, the heat, anything that you can pick up outside yourself. Awareness, awareness, awareness. Awareness and labeling. Becoming aware of your own mind is the first skill set of sitting practice. When you first begin to pay attention, it can be a real shock to see what goes on up there. There's judgment, bitterness, and a lot of other stuff. To really see the activities of the mind is the first step, to label those thoughts. This can feel dull or pointless at first. Who wants to do that every day? Thought, I could think of something better to do. Thought, it's kind of fun after all. We're changeable. See, 10 minutes ago, I didn't want to talk. Now it's, now it's fun. Oh, well, our thoughts are not to be relied on. They just come and go. Are they important? No, they're not important. But until we know our thoughts a little bit, we believe them. Oh, I'm a worthless person. Nobody loves me. It's a thought. We believe stuff like that. I can't do anything right or I'm better than I'm better than other people. Maybe they don't see it, but I know. But keep hit, keep 
kept hitting me about this cot in the self-centered dream was not the self-centered dream, but the cot. And I imagined it was, I was caught by this black rope net that, and the, the, it was about this, an inch and a half rope. And there was no way I could escape. And then just little openings. So, <laughs> so we'll always be in the self-centered dream, I think, but we don't always have to be caught. At least that's what I'm thinking today. <laughs> when you label your thoughts, be like a court reporter. You're just taking it down. I doubt if a court reporter even knows what they're taking down. They just automatically take it down. <laughs> they're not judging or analyzing. They're just recording. As soon as we're aware of a thought, we tend to analyze it. Now, why do I have that thought? Why does this come up? How does that relate to that? That's not awareness. Awareness is just seeing what happens. I'm, I'm still forever confused about this. Um, because in a sense, it seems like you're stepping outside of your body, looking at what you're seeing. And that seems very uh, kind of pretentious or unnatural. And I'm sure she doesn't mean that. What, why are we stepping outside our body? In that moment of awareness, rather than participating we're well, looking at ourselves participating well well the thing is is that you know most of my life i have been actually merging with my body mind and i haven't been able to distance myself from it i've just been going from one emotion to the next one thought to the next one belief to the next so I think what she's pointing to is that when you meditate, suddenly you become aware of the fact that that's what you've been doing. And I think in a sense, you do step away. I step away from my body and my mind that I've been all wrapped up in and just notice, you know, she's, sure. she's, not, she's not talking about analyzing. She's just talking about, oh, planning, oh, anger oh you know and that's you know I, I never was able to do that i just went straight into anger and let anger then i was anger you know <laughs> so um i think creating a distance is actually one of the benefits of of uh, becoming more aware because um if you believe what the buddha said we are not the body and the mind you know we, that's one of the reasons we're stuck. We think we are. That's the way I so, see it. So I'm a little confused because I remember. I'm a lot confused. <laughs> I remember, I think. Okay, go on. In chapter, the only thing we need to know, when she was talking about experiencing. I don't know if it was that chapter or another chapter, but okay, I'll paraphrase and I may even get the paraphrase all wrong. She was talking about experiencing our emotions. And she she was talking about when people say, oh, yes, you know, uh, I feel, I know I'm suffering. I really feel it. She says, that's not experiencing. When you are truly experiencing, you're not feeling the suffering or the anger. You are it. That's on page uh, four, four. So on the one hand, I hear Gail say, you know, I, I was the anger. I'm thinking, well, that's what she says you need to be. <laughs> and yet, well, yeah. go ahead. I, I, but I didn't know it. Do you understand? It was like, you know, we've all know when it's like to be taken over uh, emotionally by something. And we're not even aware that that's what's happened. It just, it, you know, it's like a tsunami. You know, there's no, 
And so there, yes, but there's a way that you can, there's a way that you can experience the anger without being completely merged and caught in it in an unaware state. So and that, that, that is what's called amygdala hijack. When the amygdala hijacks your emotions and you go straight like a freight train from one station to another station emotionally. And I, and I, I think what you're saying, Gail, is, is that you get that amygdala hijack sensation, but you engage the frontal lobe to be aware of it. Is that what you're saying? Well, here's what, here's what, <laughs> it, it, it's hard, it, it's hard because, you know, then you're talking about, you know, uh, well, what do we do? Are we doing something, you know, but I was trying to explain to Peg once I was in meditation and I I was watching, you know, there were these emotions coming up and all of a sudden I became aware of grief. There was grief there and the grief, I was the grief, but there was a part of me that was not, that was at, it was like I both was the grief and yet I was not the grief. It's hard, it's hard to explain, you know, it's sort of like, there's the grief experiencing, but, but I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't a personality caught up in grief. I was just experiencing grief. I guess you could say, uh, you know, in, in, in an odd way. And it was really quite beautiful actually, um, the experience, and it's hard to explain. I've, you know, I've talked before when my grandson walked into the garage and he saw this uh, mural of a dragon in our garage and he said, I'm scared. And, you know, seeing it. And I had the feeling he wasn't scared, but he was recognizing that he was scared, kind of, if you could do both. And then there's this this thing I just read that uh, from Aristotle, that it's like, you know, the wise man who can be angry and know uh, what to do with it, something like that. You know, usually we're out of control when we're angry. Right? Aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, where are we? You, you don't have to label? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Julie, based on what I'm understand isn't it like when we feel anger we tend to run away from it as like we we act out of it as like we beat someone or like we yell at it or something to just not feel it not stay there because we don't like that feeling we don't like to be to feel anger or like uh, like we don't like anger we don't like to feel angry so her point. I think your correct just tell us to stay there and observe how we actually feel and just stay there to see how like our body will be at that moment. I was reading too about D.H. Lawrence and he differentiated between mind ideas and mind experience and physical experience. And I think and the one he liked best was mind experience. So like what Nancy's saying, rather than going off in the anger physically, you're recognizing this experience you're having of the anger. And maybe it's almost like labeling, but you're, you're, you're not thinking about it. You're having that experience. Right, it's not like the experience goes away when you observe it, you're actually, more present for it. And that's what I felt about my grandson too. But you're not you're merged with it. You know, you're, you're not- Well, so you're not caught it, by it. But you're lost in it, you know? <laughs> okay, let's see what she says. <laughs> you don't have to label thoughts the whole time that you're sitting. Just try it for two to three minutes. 
the thinking we do is remarkably repetitive. So you don't need to label for the whole time you see. After a few minutes, see if you can pause the labeling and experience a little bit. Don't worry, the sort of things we are spinning with are certain to be back. You know you're not missing a thing. They're not something fresh, they're not some precious price. You can very well say to them, enough of you for now. Let's see what else is going on here. I'm having such fun listening to this and reading it, just the way it's written. I just wanted to say that before I started reading. Become aware of the complete sensory scene that you can enter when you aren't thinking. Experience the body and listen to the sounds around you. You might be able to pause for 10 seconds or 10 minutes. That's a really long time. Then the obsessive thinking shows up again. Because the minute you go back to awareness, since we don't like that very much, the mind will, in a very short time, begin to think. And Nancy, did uh, Nancy Lynch, did you want to read? Oh, are there two Nancys? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Then you start to, that's quail, right? I was just confused. Then you start to label again. It sounds dull. In a way, it is dull. But it's only dull if you're not interested in your life. If you find who isn't interested in their life. If you find it dull, just know you're not interested in your life, but in the mental version that you cook up about. As we keep noticing, we get to know ourselves in a different way. We become aware of our minds. We cool down. We begin to watch this sea of stuff that runs through our minds. It's not good or bad. It's just stuff. The more we watch it, it assumes a different place in our life. Over enough time, it calms down somewhere, somewhat. On any given day, you still might get attached to a thought. We still struggle, but when we notice that thought, if we're really honest with what we're thinking, we then begin to have other kinds of thoughts. I'm a terrible person for thinking that. Oh, I shouldn't have a thought like that. We often miss this second layer of thoughts. We have to label everything, everything. The honesty we develop about ourselves when we watch our minds is crucial. This is the first important step. Get to know our own mind, become aware of our own tendency to latch onto our thoughts. Experiencing our lives. When we take a moment to become aware of what is underneath our thoughts, we begin to understand not just our minds, but also our experiences. This is the crucial step of practice, second step of practice. This step is the only thing that works if we want to transform a life that goes chaotically from one struggle to another. We have to turn away from the sea of thoughts that we're playing with and begin to really feel what's underneath. We have to be it. When you begin, to live life from this place of honestly experiencing, even when the experiencing is painful, a revolution takes place. It will eat away at every, it will eat away everything that you thought you were. Very, very slowly, we move away from our self-centered view of things. Suppose I have a real stew in my life and I get stuck thinking the same thing over and over again. I hate it. I can't stand it. I think it's unfair. It's a whole mishmash. And I'm going over, over all of it. What they said, what I said, was going to happen next. This is what the average worker environment is like. Everyone is, sim is smiling sweetly, of course. But underneath, there's a stew of thoughts and emotions. Human situations, when you get four or five people together who don't practice, tend to be lethal. It's very easy to get caught in the swirl of judgments of yourself and other people. Often, we get caught in our thoughts and we act from this place of anger and judgment. And then our actions produce more anger and judgment. It can take a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of practice, to even know what we are experiencing because we use everything. 
all our conscious and unconscious defenses not to experience what we're experiencing. Resistance is a major part of practice. I don't want to sit today. It's too hard. I'll sit every other day next month. I'll sit every day next month. I want to find a practice that makes me feel good. I want to feel good too, but really feel good, not dressing things up with something that's tinsel. And the thing is, we get around to feeling things one way or another. So slowly we learn to go toward experience with less resistance because it's the only thing we can do. This ability to experience is what makes for an exciting human life. One that's opening up, fresh. The trees look different, people look different. As you embrace the suffering of life, the wonder shows up at the same time. They go together. No, I never, until I read this, that thing of, uh, from D.H. Lawrence, I never really thought of experience could be a mind thing. But he, you know, he seemed to think that it could. And I think she's talking about the same thing. These experiences are, aren't necessarily like walking in the woods. They're taking place within us. <laughs> I well, think it's, uh, go on. Well, I there's mean, never been a moment when you're not experiencing. We no, but you're, but sometimes you're like when you burned yourself on the stove, that's a physical experience. Yeah. But when you, let's say, a friend tells you about some pain they're in, that can be a mind experience. Yes, you're I'll not feeling. Isn't it's everything a, a mind experience though? Because it's all filtered through the mind. So, so I think I think if we look at the Buddhist teachings around like the skandhas, you know, he does does sort of lay out this idea of a thought or an emotion as you know as as being a phenomenon, just like the phenomena of the Kim said of burning yourself on the stove. So, I mean, yeah. It's all form uh, in the world of form, even, you know, thoughts and emotions that they're the same. <clears throat> they're the practice, practice is just life. These are the two crucial elements of practice to watch our mind and notice our thoughts and to fully experience what is underneath them. That should be underlined right there. <laughs> but these practice elements only matter as much as our ability to apply them in our lives. We tend to think of practice as some strange thing instead of seeing that it is just our life, that it cuts through all the illusions we like to think we like to think are our life. What we are learning, we're only learning if we can bring it to all the events of our life. Everything is our practice, from the way we like to talk, from the way we talk to people at work, to the way we treat the people we see every day. This is crucial. I notice in my own practice, the one thing that slowly, slowly, slowly <coughs> diminishes is any desire to fix anyone else. As far as I'm concerned, more and more, they're just fine being the way they are. I don't mean that I say they're fine while actually thinking they should be more how I think they should be. When I say they are good just the way they are, there's no rippling inside. When you really and truly think someone else is okay, do you know what happens to them? Without anybody analyzing or thinking, they feel, oh, at last, there's someone who thinks I'm okay just the way I am. This transforms a person. This is what we on one we are on waiting for. You're not waiting for words of wisdom about who you should be. What most of us are waiting for is someone else to really think you okay with on you one, just the way you are. Life as it is. You don't have to like or accept people as they are. You don't have to accept anybody. 
accept as a judgment something you think you should do, but we do get to have more awareness of how we experience other people. The less we try to control this person or this moment, the more we can experience our own lives. Okay, uh, uh, Nancy, for a second, turn off original sound. I know we were emailing about that, but I think when you talk, then I hear noise in the background, and I think that's the original sound that I hear. Could you try that? I'm working on it. I think it's my AC going off. Okay, it's off. Oh, I still hear it. It's my AC, I bet. Oh, okay. But we can hear you. Okay, next, next paragraph. Who's Nelda next? Nelda is, but she's muted. Here we go. There's no way to get life exactly the way we want it because it's changing so rapidly. What's okay this week will be blown to the bit will be blown to bits the next week. Life doesn't work. It can't work. There's nothing called life. There are just enormous energy fields changing at tremendous speeds. I'm going to repeat that. There are just enormous energy fields changing at tremendous speeds. You can't even hope that it will work. You can only enjoy it. Nancy, why don't you finish that section? All right. Life is always just the way it is. I might hope at my age that everything just ticks along perfectly. All that practice, but the fact is, it ticks the way it ticks. Nice. Would this be a good spot to pause and do some writing? I think so. I'd agree. Yep. You want to do 10 minutes of writing? I'll see you all at. Oh, yeah, we're in a completely uh, part two, which is a really interesting part. All right. Uh, for next time on the Core right. Believe. See you all at 810. Yes, sir. Awesome. What's our, what's our prompt? Your prompt. Right. Another? What's the prompt? Right. Um. <laughs> um. I think all the all stuff right. we've talked about and she wrote about experiencing and and life as it is and looking for that person who will tell you you're okay all that stuff or practices just life i'd like yes. to help interpreting what does she mean by label things if you need a prompt <laughs> okay great all right so we're done writing right I believe we are, Kim. Thank you very much. Anyone want to share first? I don't mind. Is someone going to talk? Or someone is talking and I can't hear? I think I, think I was starting, uh, as I always do. Aw. <laughs> now I can hear. Yeah. Um, so what I wrote about, I started out with, what does it mean to honestly experience my life? Um, and uh, I was um, kind of going back to the beginning of what we were reading tonight when she talked about how sometimes we think our spiritual practice is uh, not progressing because we're feeling depressed or sad or stuck or, you know, all those other, other things. And that's where I've been actually going to confess um, for um, so, some time now, a number of weeks or maybe even months. And so I appreciated reading that because I think what I'm being asked to do is honestly experience being stuck <laughs> instead of, you know, wanting to go be, go someplace else, you know, and I, appreciated hearing that maybe experiencing um, conflict or suffering thoughts or 
you know, all these other things um, is part of the way that we become even more aware if we're will willing to actually um, look at it, you know. Um, so that's kind of what I um, was journaling a little bit about. Um, you know, uh, how I, um, I have to ask myself, um, what is it that I really want? <laughs> you know, um, and if I really want to be awake, then I have to be awake to even uh, being um, depressed and stuck and all those other things that um, um, I don't like, so. Are you feeling those things at that moment when you're recognizing that you're feeling those things? Um, I don't. I don't think I understand your question, Kim. Could you repeat it? Well, let's say you're feeling down, and then you realize you're feeling down. Are you feeling down at that moment of feeling down, or are you just simply labeling, as she says? Um, well, recently I noticed that, um, you know, I, I've been, um, getting triggered and then wrapped up in the conflict of the emotions and the thoughts, you know, and then I do recognize that that's what happened, but not always in the moment it's happening or it's very strange. Uh, like I had an argument with my daughters this weekend and I could see myself moving into the argument and I could see myself unwilling to stop the momentum of my emotions. <laughs> and yet, uh, I, I didn't pause and I didn't stop. And, um, you know, it was just, it, it was just interesting to me. So, um, Yeah. I'm just curious about that, how we feel, you know, like with my grandson, how we feel when we're really aware of our feelings. Yeah. I was aware of the fact that I was having feelings and I was aware of the fact that I didn't want to stop um, with the suffering story. And you know, one thing I notice in practice is that whenever I'm in a place, let's say of sadness or depression or anger or whatever, there's a story going on. And um, I'm aware that I'm repeating a story. Now I've had enough practice to know that that's what I'm doing. But there's a part of me that is very, um, isn't willing to give the story up, which you would think I would want to do because it's causing suffering. And yet, here it is. And um, so, so this, this is a very productive place to be, to notice <laughs> that you seem to want to continue to suffer. Well, it's benefiting us in some way, isn't it? Well, it's making me feel, um, you know, separate. Like, and, in, like uh, in the victim. sense of, it, it, <laughs> It allows us not to be intimate when yes, yeah. You know, I, my, I had an aunt and uncle, and they fought continually so that they didn't have to be together. You know, so they could maintain their own beings or whatever. There was, seemed to be some reason for it. Mm -hmm. That was their relationship by creating distance. Yeah, it's good to notice, isn't it? You know, I mean, you know, it's very perceptive. And that's certainly what um, I, I experienced just, you know, this weekend, but it's all been part of a pattern of feeling uh, stuck and depressed. And then having old stuff come up that I thought I dealt with. <laughs> and um, I, I appreciate that Joe Bobeck is pointing out that these are productive periods. You don't have to um, turn away from them or you know, move into this tremendous judgment and shame thing, which you know, I had a moment of that. <laughs> you know, so um, I, I think that's what I appreciated about reading tonight. Yeah, you could see your, you know, where she talks about seeing the other person 
uh, toward the end <laughs> as if they're okay, you could see yourself as okay too. Yeah, yeah. That's all I wanted to share. Thank you. All. That was a lot. <laughs> that was so much. Someone else? May I ask a question of everyone? Well, I'm gonna ask a question of everyone. How's that? Okay. Um, because I'd really like some input on this. Um, I, for me, she suggests that we not analyze what we're feeling in meditation. And I, and I get that. I, I try not to analyze it while I'm in meditation. But I find that what comes up, whatever physical or emotional or thought patterns come up, in meditation that more often than not, it seems it's worth my while to look at those again in contemplation because doing that seems to really, it's almost like the, those things coming up in, medi in meditation give me fodder um, to use in contemplation and, and actually give me um, quite deeper insights into patterns and constructs. And if I look at them in contemplation, then I am able to, well, you know, um, well, you don't know, so I'll say it. I look at myself as being the master of my thoughts and the creator of my thoughts, my emotions, and my physical sensations. So that means I can change them. And I feel like when I'm in meditation and things come up, if I look at them again in contemplation, then I have that choice. I have that awareness through contemplation of what these constructs are, how they're, in, they're hindering my joy and peace, and how I, as the creator of all of them, can change them. So I, the question is, you know, here's the bow. The question is, what do you all think about analysis, or I call it contemplation, of those thoughts, feelings, and um, bodily sensations. I find it helpful. I'd like to hear other people's experience. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a form like anything else. And sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not helpful. And I suppose it's how you're using it and the context in which you're, which you're using it. Because, I mean, you can analyze yourself to death and just not get anywhere. <laughs> So, you know, I, I'd say like with anything else, it's uh... I think that's a good answer. I was thinking about a bottle, you know, like drinking, like you could enjoy a glass of wine or you could have 10 bottles of wine. Mm. And, you know, it's like, um, I use the tool, like I use tool metaphors a lot, but like you can't get a screwdriver to do a hammer's job. So you just have to pick the, based on what, for you pick the right form for the practice that is right for what you're doing. She talked about the fact that we keep repeating these thoughts and it seems useful to ask, why does that thought keep coming up? Why do I keep thinking of my father or, or you know, me with my drawing? Why do I keep drawing the same drawing over and over again for 60 years, you know, seven, almost 65 years? So, you know, why? I think you're, Nelda, it sounds like you're describing practice. I mean, that's, that's what practice is. We're, right, sitting quietly to see what comes up, and we note what comes up. And then what we do with that later is, is our choice, but it's a choice. Just like you said, like we have, the, we have the option, we have the freedom, we have the little space to say, do I want to harbor that? Do I want to let it go? I mean, that's, I, I, you just described to me a practice I would like to have. I mean, that, bam. So, so what if we're trying not to harbor it, but it just keeps coming back, coming back, coming back? Well, that it will do that, won't it, if you don't look at it? And that's not even bad thoughts either. Like, how many times do I sit and then I think about what I'm having for dinner? Like, is there really any greater psychological, like, 
meaning behind that? No, I think it's just more interesting to think about what I'm going to watch for dinner, eat for dinner, than try to, you know, actually sit still for 20 minutes. <laughs> well, Nelda, I really think that's a Peg question. I think Peg would be the one to be able to guide you um, to kind of give you some parameters on how to practice with that. Um, she, she knows you, she knows all about practice. So I would spring that one on Peg the next time you get a chance. Who else would like to share? Well, I can share. So there's a word um, that I was writing back and forth with my first teacher, and it's called, and I don't know how to pronounce it, momentariness momentariness and what it is is this concept that each moment is completely recreated over and over and over again it's a, a doctrine in buddhism so anyway i wrote kind of about that but related to what we were reading supposedly in in every moment life regenerates or so the ancients believed it is like a movie here today, gone tomorrow. Is that why we say seize the moment? Being aware of this moment, realizing it has a life of a nanosecond can lead us toward awakeness. It is now or never. And then there's a drawing. So that's the drawing of this moment where two equals one. <laughs> And that's my, my dog, I was visiting my daughter today and her dog was, she was so proud. It wasn't actually jumping up on me, but it was very eager to. But anyway, uh, so whatever you see, whatever you experience now, the next moment, it, it's created and then it vanishes and then the next moment it's recreated. So if you don't seize it, it will never be, you'll never have another opportunity for this moment. Have you come across this, Donna? Not like that, no. Mm -mm. I mean, it, it, it seems like, I think maybe the Sarvastavadins or somebody, somebody of that ilk and their Abhidharmas came up with a, a, a theory of, you know, that, um, reality was made up of like moment, 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 um, which is probably, you know, what uh, probably related to what you're talking about, but I don't know much at all about that. Um, it certainly was a, a point of contention in ancient times. <laughs> But how are you going to grasp a moment? I'll just read a little bit of, uh, oops. How gorgeous. Just thought of it. You can see it, right? Yeah. The object of the Buddhist doctrine of moment, momentariness is not the nature of time, but existence within time. Rather than atomizing, time into moments that atomizes phenomena temporarily, temporally by dissecting them into a succession of discrete momentary entities. So it's like a film, a movie where there's frame and then frame and each frame. And what was so neat is, is once a student brought over a film, it was like a final critique, but I had it at my apartment and I had an eight millimeter projector and it was a super eight film. So we could watch each frame, but then it would blow up, burn up and, and it would turn to flame. And then we go to the next. And 
we had the greatest time watching her film and destroying it at the same time and seeing each frame just burst like a, you know, and then get recreated. It was exactly this. It atomizes phenomena temporarily by dissecting them into succession of discrete momentary entities. Its fundamental proposition is that everything passes out of existence as soon as it has originated. And in this sense is momentary. So, you know, there's not, you know, we have so many sayings like this, don't we? There's no moment mm -hmm. like the present, things like that. Um, like the, as the sky. Energy, Kim, it's like the sky, like the, the sky in the, billions of, in the billions of years it has existed in no nanosecond has it ever been exactly the same. And Go you ahead. know about the guy, it, it's a, the guy who photographs snowflakes and there's no two snowflakes the same. I actually bought that book. It was in the 30s, I think. Yeah, you, you recommended oh, that really? book. I, I haven't read it. Oh, really? <laughs> the Dover book? Yes. Yeah, but you can look at the pictures. Yeah. As the entity vanishes, it gives rise to a new entity of almost the same nature, which originates immediately afterwards. Thus, there is an uninterrupted flow of causality connected momentarily, con connected momentary entities of nearly the same nature, the so-called continuum, Santana. Those entities succeed each other so fast that the process could not be discerned by ordinary perception. If we try, we try to hang on, don't we? We try yeah. to we try to like even the phrase seize the moment how can you possibly do that but we do it because we have stories and we tell ourselves the same story over and over and over as if it were still happening <laughs> you know another one is don't blink or you'll miss <laughs> yeah so it's kind of it's futile isn't it I love that this is the second week in a row of snow and snowflake imagery. <laughs> Screw. Donna started it. The ever-changing sky, the one succession of unique minute things fluttering down after another one. And then I was reading too this article about Philip Glass and the Dalai Lama or something and or someone and someone some artist and, and the dalai lama i think and he was saying so is meditation all about or zen all about being aware and the dalai lama said absolutely that's it and it makes more sense if um if this thing is going to change not change vanish and then get recreated moment by moment that how important it is to be aware because it won't be again. So anyway, that's it. That's where the joy comes from, actually. Okay, say wh why. Well, isn't it fabulous? <laughs> I mean, this this constant flow, this life energy, or whatever we're experiencing, you know, and um, it, if you don't have to hang on to a story, I think all there is is sort of like appreciation and joy. So and maybe, will you appreciate you know, too the, the lineage, the fact that, that this moment uh, caused that will cause the next moment. So there's a connection. They're not random moments, right? Well, you took the cause and effect class that Peg taught, right? So there's no one cause and effect. That's what I got, bottom line. <laughs> it, it's all. It's very hairy. It's all well, happening now. <laughs> And also, yeah, and all happening now. So how can we have moment after moment if it's all happening now? <laughs> right. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> and every moment is fresh, right? So isn't that joy? Isn't every that joy? moment is what? 
is fresh, completely oh. new. <laughs> yes, that's what I was thinking, Nancy. <laughs> cool. Well, Cody, I thought you said, Nancy, every moment is frustrating. So isn't that joy? Or is that... <laughs> but every moment is fresh. Yeah. So no matter so no matter how many times those thoughts come up, it's fine. You but you can always just come back to the breath, come back to the present, come back to the snowflakes or whatever whatever you got going on there. Eventually your nervous system starts to learn that. Like I can always start over. I can always at any moment hit the refresh button. Okay. And you get tired too. <laughs> I think it, yeah. it seems at the point when you recognize, oh, I've had that thought over and over and over again, it's then it starts to dissipate, doesn't it? Yeah, but sometimes it, seem, it just seems like the mind is just going crazy, like, you know, thoughts and music playing in my head and, you know, all that good stuff. It's just weird. It's it's the, mine's gonna go. Sorry. It's the monkeys going crazy, Cody. That's all it is. Just yeah. gotta ignore those monkeys. Sleep every night. I'm sorry. I need to put them to sleep every now and again. I said I need to put them to sleep every now and again. There's some great. <laughs> there's some great uh, sleep meditations for that. well thank you everyone thank you all so much see you next week thank you glenn for being our um, thank you thanks for, thanks for making all this happen um i'll be gone for the next three weeks but i'll look forward to coming back okay, you, Gail. okay. Thank you. take care donna i'm not donna Hello, Gail. sorry Hi. take care everyone have a great week you too